about to go talk to a lot of the Free Britney fans who are here to support the pop star. We are here today outside of the Stanley Moss Courthouse because a grave injustice has been done that needs to be corrected. I hope to hear that, you know, as fans, we're, we're right that the conservative is limiting her civil liberties and I hope to hear that um, she's going to get out of it soon. That's what I really hope to hear today. Hi, Lonnie. It's really great that we're having this conversation. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while and I'm so happy to be speaking with you now. So please introduce yourself for my listeners. Well, thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Um, I've looked forward to this moment. We've talked about it for quite a while and now it's finally happening. So I'm, I'm honored to be uh, your guest. I'm Lonnie Coombs. I was a criminal prosecutor for 18 years in the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Um, during that 18 years, I specialized in murder cases. Near the end of my career, that was probably my forte. But I did spend some time as the head of the hate crimes unit for about two years. I ran that for the county. So in that capacity, I was in charge of all of the hate crime cases that were filed in Los Angeles. And I also trained law enforcement and went out in the community and talked about hate crimes, trying to educate people on that. I also, for a few years, was in another special unit called Crimes Against Police Officers or COPOS. And that was a unit that anytime a police officer was shot or killed in the line of duty, we would roll out to the crime scene and um, follow the case from, from the crime scene on through to um, the trial. So those were some of the special units I worked in. I loved being a criminal prosecutor. I, I just feel like it's really important, meaningful work. Uh, and in so many ways, you're able to help people and give people a voice that don't have a voice. And then uh, around 2006, I took a leave of absence from the DA's office. And I actually started covering cases for different news outlets, um, live cases. And then I was doing legal commentary for different cases. I dabbled in some, you know, news things as far as reporting and um, doing some anchoring of news and, and things like that. And then more recently in the last five years or so, I've been doing a lot of true crime, hosting true crime shows, active investigation shows where we're actually working on old cases or cold cases as we sort of let that unfold in front of the cameras. Excellent. And some of the true crime, I mean, you've been doing quite a lot in the true crime space. You've been very modest because you've been, you know, very busy. What are some of the things that people can see you in? Well, I've done, I think, about four shows now that are on Oxygen. The first one I did, which is very dear to my heart, is called Final Appeal, which was a, a show that I co-hosted with Brian Banks, who many people may be familiar with. He's an exoneree uh, who went on to play um, professional football. And we went across the country and looked into four cases where people had claimed that they'd been wrongfully convicted. And we looked at the case again and determined if we thought that they were wrongfully convicted or not, and then did what we could to help move the case forward. And since that case aired, out of the four cases that we looked at, the four people, two of them have been released from prison after many, many years in prison. I did a show on the Rebecca Zahau 
uh, case, and that we did with uh, Billy Jensen and Paul Holes. I did a show called um, The Case Died With Her, which is about a young woman who was, uh, we have to say, allegedly sexually assaulted when she was in high school by her track coach. And many years later, came forward and decided to um, to prosecute and you know talk to the police. And they said, "Well, we need evidence." And so she actually got a confession from him on tape, recorded him. They filed the case, and then just before it went to trial, she was found dead in her apartment. So the case never went to trial. They they terminated the case once she uh, was dead. So that was that was a, a, a fascinating case, one that's raises a lot of issues. Um, so I, I've enjoyed the cases that I've worked on. Um, I think that being able to do it in a format where other people can see it on camera it is really important because it brings a spotlight to these cases that might not have it otherwise. And it also gets people looking at them. Another show I did was called Lover's Lane, which focused on the Colonial Parkway murders, which are still unsolved to this day, years, years later. And people are still wondering, you know, was it a serial killer? Was it uh, multiple killers? And the more that we talk about these cases, the more that people look at it and put a spotlight on it, um, the more that people look at it. I mean, it's fascinating when you hear the viewers the things that they come up with. And you never know when you're going to touch someone who's like, oh, I know something about that case, even years later, and make him forward with the, the piece that is the missing piece that opens the whole case up again. So uh, I think a lot of good can be done through these true crime shows. Absolutely. I mean, that's real crime at its best, really, where many of us as professionals, we are using those multimedia platforms to be able to solve and resolve cases or to shine a light on something that perhaps has been hidden, buried, whatever it might be. And two exonerees is is amazing, actually. So congratulations. And I watched very closely Rebecca's case as well. And I remember us talking about it briefly at CrimeCon. Perhaps that's another interview for another time. Because again, a fascinating case that really does need to be reopened. And then Bill Thomas and his sister, um, I've interviewed many times. And yes, cases that are cold, closed, that actually most likely can be resolved. And if we ask the right questions and if people have the appetite to reopen, um, I genuinely believe that all cases are solvable. It just depends on who are the leaders at the time and who are the leaders now who wants to open something, how much resource, time and energy they want to put into it. And of course, it's very reliant on people coming forward. So appealing to the audience, whether it's a podcast, someone listening or watching, they may hold a key piece of information that they just didn't think was relevant at the time. Now they might understand where it fits in and they may well come forward. So we see cases being solved in that way. So yes, we I will no doubt ask you to come back on to Crime Analyst and we'll talk about some of those cases specifically because they're each worthy of uh, attention. But I really wanted to jump on and talk with you because I saw that you had actually been down at the courthouse for the conservatorship hearing, which was on the 23rd of June, and you were actually there covering it. Um, I wonder if you could just give a bit of background context to that, of you going down there and just tell us about 
uh, what it was like. And then we'll get into, well, what is a conservatorship? And then just some of the detail of what's going on. Okay. I um, do, I appear on Access Hollywood quite regularly, covering different cases. And they asked me to be part of the team that went down to cover the Britney Spears conservatorship hearing, which was happening in court, uh, sort of modified because of COVID. The judge was going to be there, but most of the attorneys were going, if not all of them, were going to be um, remote as well as Brittany. Now, Brittany had asked through her attorney in April to speak directly to the judge. And no one knew what she was going to say. It didn't specify why she wanted to speak to the judge, but she wanted to speak directly. And so that's what the hearing was for, essentially that. Now, there are people who are Britney's fans and supporters who have been growing very concerned about her over the years as she has been under this conservatorship for 13 years now. And especially since about 2019, these voices have been getting louder and louder. And with every conservatorship hearing, they've started to appear. And, you know, a few here and there with with cards and um, posters and, you know, the hashtag Free Britney became big and there's been some podcasts on it and stuff. Well, last week, there were over a 100 fans slash protesters there. There were posters and banners and microphones. People who are flying in from Detroit and Philadelphia. There were uh, people who had talked on podcasts. There were people who posted about this on social media. There were people who are conservatorship experts who are also concerned from the legal aspect about whether this is being abused in, in Britney's situation. It was uh, loud. It was um, chaos. And then there was media from all around the world there covering it. We were all outside in front of the courthouse. And the way it was set up is you had to sign up for a link previously. And then when the hearing was starting, you would join in on the link and you could hear audio only if you weren't in the courtroom. So that's what was going on when I was there and everyone was listening. And before uh, the hearing actually started, there were, you know, speeches being made by different people um, and cheers and chants. And there was a little parade that they did. So there was a lot going on by Brittany's uh, fans and supporters to get attention. Amazing. I mean, so the first thing is that it was Brittany who asked specifically to speak to the judge. So that's what's new, isn't it? We we haven't heard her voice before talking specifically about the detail of how it's impacted on her, because I think a lot of her fans have done a great job at raising awareness with the free Britney movement. But it was certainly new to me anyway. And maybe you'll correct me, Lonnie, if she has spoken out, because I know that there was a hearing two years ago, but I haven't heard her voice and her account at any point. Although I have seen, obviously, her posts on social media, on Instagram. That's right. And a lot of people, she has been very vague about uh, the conservatorship. Early on, when she was out touring and things, she made a couple of statements about the conservatorship because she was under it at that time, kind of saying, you know, it's putting some restraints on me. It's making it a little harder for me to do my work. But other than that, she has not said much publicly. And so her fans have tried to sort of interpret what she's putting on social media. However, the day before this hearing, the New York Times printed what they said were confidential court transcripts of hearings 
that had gone on in Britney's case in 2014, 2016, and 2019. And based on those transcripts, it's clear that as early as 2014, she has been talking about it to the court through her attorney. She has been asking that they terminate the conservatorship. She's been saying she doesn't want her dad in charge. She's been saying she doesn't like what's going on. Uh, And even in 2019, at that time, she came into court. It was her, her father, Jamie, and her mother, Lynn, and they all three spoke directly to the court. But at that time, Brittany's attorney asked that it be sealed because they said that, you know, they're going to be talking about kids and about uh, financial issues and about her health. And so they asked that everyone be kicked out of the courtroom and the transcripts be sealed. And that's what was done. So she did speak herself that time, but we didn't know what was going on. But now we do because um, a lot of that came out in these articles and these transcripts that were put out in the New York Times just the day before the hearing. Well, that's very interesting um, because what I heard in her testimony was that she was asking for this to be made public. She actually wanted people to hear And I think that's a really important change. And her finding her voice, I think that's a very important and significant change because this, this, we're talking about 13 years here, aren't we? It's, it's a long time. A long time. And what's interesting is even a a year ago, her attorney, you could tell some changes were coming in May of 2020 because her attorney in one of these hearings said, he objected to it being sealed. He objected it being to being um, kept from the public. And he said, I think that Mr. Spears has been aggressive in his use of asking that everything be sealed. You know, my client doesn't want that to be done. So that was a huge change. All of a sudden, her attorney was speaking up and saying, we want this open. And then for her to say, I want to make this statement publicly. And I have to say, you know, we're speculating on the reason why, but based on all the timeline that I've looked at and sort of the evolution of now that we have these transcripts from 2014 on, I think that she was being kept in a very controlling situation where she was being told a lot of things in that, that to her were sort of threats. Like if you speak out, you know, the conservatorship's going to be mad and they're going to pull away more things from you. And so she kept being quiet and her, her own attorney was telling her, it's not going to be good for you if you speak out. But when the wave of the Free Britney movement got bigger and bigger and louder and louder, I think that was the first time she realized, hey, you know what? There are people on my side that actually think this isn't good for me. Maybe they're right, you know? And and for the first time, I think she was starting to hear people saying, you know, you're not crazy to think that you're in a bad situation. You are in a bad situation. And I think that all of us, when we get in abusive situations or controlling situations, you need that sounding board. You know, I have my mom, I call her. And I have been in some bad relationships in the past. I would call her and say, okay, I need a sounding board. Tell me what you think. Am I crazy? And I would lay out the facts and she'd say, no, 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 you're right. Go with your gut. I don't think Brittany had anyone who was telling her, no, you're right. This is a, this is a really burdensome, crazy situation you're in. And the years went by and the years went by and she was just stuck in it. And then finally something happened and she said, wait a minute, I'm going to speak up for myself. Yeah. And I think what you've just said there is so important that her echo chamber was reduced to the people that were around her. And they're the people who are controlling every aspect and micromanaging every aspect of her life. So there hasn't been any other 
outlets for her. But perhaps let's go back just one step, just explain before we get into the detail, because there's so much that you've just said there that we need to unpick. For listeners that are in other parts of the world, can you just explain what a conservatorship is? Yeah, a conservatorship is a legal um, protection, essentially. When people are old and infirm, if they're getting dementia, Alzheimer's, or they're just physically incapable, or if they have a mental breakdown, a situation like that where they're not able to take care of themselves or their finances, then someone can go to court and say, look, and put the case before the judge and say, these are the reasons why we think they need a conservatorship. And the judge will decide, okay, and there's two kinds. There's one over the person, which, and they take care of things like, you know, what you're going to eat, what kind of medication you're going to take, you know, when you're going to see the doctor. And then the other one is financial. So that's any business dealings, any career moves, anything like that. So in 2008, many people remember at that time that um, Britney Spears, even though she had a very, very successful career, was going through some emotional and, and you know, had a, essentially a, a mental breakdown in public. Um, so some very erratic behavior. She'd shaved her head. She'd attacked some paparazzi with an umbrella and um, had been, you know, taken in for mental evaluation a couple of times. And so her father went into court and said, I, I think she needs a conservatorship. At that time, Brittany went into court and she said, okay, I have two requests. One, I've hired my own attorney and he's a good, you know, conservatorship attorney. I'd like him to represent me. And two, I ask that you not put my father in charge. I don't want him to be my conservator. Two very reasonable requests, I think. The judge said no to both. The judge said, no, you can't have your own attorney. We're going to appoint this man who we've used forever on other big conservatorship cases that we know and we have a good relationship with him, Samuel Ingram. He's going to be your attorney and we're putting your father in charge of both your finances and your personal decisions. So now he's in charge of everything. So right off the bat, she didn't have either of those two granted. And I can only imagine how different it would have gone if she had had her own attorney, you know, separate from her family, from the court who had her own best interests and had not had her father in charge. Absolutely. And and the fact that she said that specifically at that time is, again, really important, that the attorney that she hired was Adam Streisand, and he says that he assessed her on the basis of, did she understand what was going on at the time? And he said that he believed that she did understand what was happening and that she was resigned to the fact there was going to be a conservatorship but her only specification was that her father was not involved. And he said that when they went to court, the judge removed him and said that he had read a report and he would have to remove him and replace him. And Streisand found that very strange at the time. But of course, sometimes when you're at court, you know this fully well, you, you're not in possession of all the details and all the facts. He went with what the judge's decision was. The question for me was, what was in that report? What was in the report, which meant that she just was her own autonomy and her own decision making about this is the attorney that I choose, someone who's independent, someone who would look out for her was removed and somebody else who she had no relationship with at all, replaced Streisand. And then it goes from a temporary conservatorship to a permanent conservatorship pretty quickly. 
and went completely against her will. And that feels so wrong to me, Lonnie, that even when we go back in time, it started badly, didn't it? It really did. Now, the catch-22 with conservatorships, you know, in, in the right situation, they are wonderful. You know, they can protect a person's legacy. They can make sure that they get the proper care at the end of their life. You know, in certain situations, it can be a really wonderful thing. Um, but in this situation, those things that she was requesting seem to be very reasonable. But the catch-22 with conservatorships is because you're talking about sometimes, many times, their mental health, there are evaluations done about the mental health that they don't want to put out in the public. And so they're rightfully sealed to protect the person's privacy. But then people who are from the outside looking in and saying, is this right or not? They can always fall back on, well, it's, it's based on a report that you can't see. So you don't know. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So there's always the caveat, even, and I'm making the caveat now too, even as we're looking at this, while many things look outrageous, we don't have the full picture because there are reports that were done, evaluations that were done that are not public, that we don't know, that may say things about, you know, Brittany's situation that may have warranted these things. I don't know. But on the base, you know, on the outside looking in objectively, everything about that attorney that you said, the first attorney that she picked, it seemed that just, you know, objectively, he was a good attorney. He was an experienced attorney. He spent time with Brittany to evaluate the situation. It seems to me that that's okay. Then that seems like he, he would be good for that situation. You know, forget whether she may have other issues or not. She's picked an attorney here that seems to qualify for the work and she has a good relationship with him. That seems like a positive in my, in my, you know, favor, especially when you're doing this on a conservatorship that's right off the bat, an unusual conservatorship because she is young. She's not old. She's not infirm. You know, um, she's very capable in many areas. She may have some mental issues at that point, some mental health issues, but it's still, it was meant to be a temporary conservatorship in those situations where you help them while they're having their issues, that crisis time, and then you get them as quickly as possible back on the road to being independent. And that's what strikes me as being very strange and as an uh, anomaly, because as you said, with dementia, with other, you know, genuine concerns that family members might have, it might be absolutely appropriate for a conservatorship, particularly for older people. But here we had a 26-year-old mum who had been a very successful pop star businesswoman in charge of her autonomy, her future, who clearly was going through difficulties. And I think it is important just to backstate where she'd come from as a child star and being very poised, very clear, mental clarity 
wanting full hands-on her future. Every interview I've seen of her, she seems very eloquent, very together. And it's unfortunate that when she has two children close together and she then files for divorce, she's going through custody battles, she's clearly under pressure. And when we understand the context of what went on with the even the the paparazzi who had been following her aggressively all the time and she would cooperate. But when she had her children, that changed as any mother would feel protective to their child. And so the relationship changed. The media at times were aggressive and hostile to her. And that shaving of the head, which everybody feels is the sign of some kind of meltdown, I'm curious about it as to whether that was what she felt was the only thing she could control, i.e. if she took her beauty away, if she took her crowning mane and glory away, perhaps the media wouldn't follow her as much. But it's the night where she goes to Kevin's house and she is followed by a reporter and a photographer and Kevin refuses to allow her entry and she loses custody as well of the children. That's why she's trying to see him. And the media follow her again. And it's that night where she's in the car. She then grabs an umbrella and she starts hitting the car that the journalists are in. And they take that very famous picture that went all around the world where she's got the staring eyes and obviously has no hair. Taken out of context, anyone would look like they're in a meltdown situation. So my, my question is always put something back in context. What was really going on? Because there's possible postpartum depression. She's had two children very quickly. You know, I'm seeing trauma and somebody who needs help, not somebody who is crazy and is losing their mind. And therefore, the assessments are very important that you have someone who's trauma-informed, that understands women. And I'm not entirely sure whether that happened. But what we do know is that dad, Jamie Spears, suddenly reappears on the scene, hasn't really been involved in her career, her upbringing, according to mum, Lynn. And Jamie suddenly steps in, I would say, fairly aggressively and decides that he's the person to take charge of her and her career where he's had no involvement. And that raises a red flag for me. That's instant concern as to why he would be the logical person, given that really it was her mum and others who were much more involved in her life from, a, from an early age and to, to that point. Yeah, yeah, I think those are great points. And and going back to putting it into context, it's interesting. One of the things that I think came out from the recent documentary, Framing Britney Spears, is that people now in 2021 are looking at what happened and how people were interpreting uh, Britney's behavior and how the media treated her and how sort of society reacted to her because we were not as educated and as informed on trauma and um, things like that as, as, as we are now, right? So the sensitivities and the issues that you just brought up about postpartum depression, you know, and the fact that she had just had these two children so close together. I don't remember anyone bringing up those issues in the media when they were, it was, it was all salacious. It was all going after Brittany. And I think you see that even, um, you know, sort of in the sensitivities that Justin Timberlake is bringing up, you know, now I'm sorry, I, I didn't see it correctly. And I think a lot of people are sort of saying that to themselves too. You know, I didn't see the whole situation. I didn't understand the whole situation. Uh, she wasn't treated fairly. There was a lot of judgment going on. And 
as far as Jamie Spears coming in, um, it, it, even when that happened, I was wondering why too, because he had always been kind of at least portrayed, you know, in the tabloids and stuff, he was sort of the bad guy, right? And the mom was the one who sort of saved Brittany and, you know, got divorced and he had been, you know, allegations of, you know, alcoholism and, and whatever was going on, but it wasn't a good situation. But now all of a sudden he's the one that's stepping in and Brittany, you know, she's objecting to him. And was there any hearing on, okay, why are you objecting to him? Tell me about the reasons why, because she clearly had a whole lifetime with him. She, you know, probably had some good reasons why. And then the fact that, as you said, it turned from a temporary conservatorship to a permanent very quickly. And the interesting thing was the reasons why that were given over and over again for why this conservatorship had to keep going was because of her complex finances and her susceptibility to undue influence and also some intermittent drug issues. So you're not hearing necessarily that there's this underlying, you know, health crisis, right? But it's her complex finances, which come about because she's so successful, because she is such an amazing performer and businesswoman. And you think, okay, how ironic that is if she wasn't this famous, wealthy, successful businesswoman, would she have been stuck in this conservatorship, right? For so long. And then the fact that they say she's susceptible to undue influence Sure, you can say that as far as people coming in to maybe try and take her wealth, but what about all the people who are influencing her in her conservatorship? The things that they're telling her in the no, you shouldn't talk, speak out. No, you just have to do everything we tell you to do. They're not even paying attention to their own diagnosis of her, that she's susceptible to this undue influence. Who's the person that's sitting there being her sounding board and telling her, look, you don't have to listen to all these people. What do you want? You know, what, what feels good for you? Excellent points that her autonomy is completely overlooked in the conservatorship. And I think, you know, originally it sounds like the self-styled guru, Sam Lufty, who appeared on the scene, there may have been genuine concerns about his influence on Britney and concern about her money and concern about decisions that she was making. So there could well have been kernels of genuine concern But with any kind of mental health issue, things do tend to be temporary, particularly with someone as young as Brittany and someone who was so in charge of her autonomy, her agency and her destiny. So to me, they're they're red flags of where Jamie Spears comes in without knowing anything else. Of course, now we know there's substance misuse, there's domestic abuse allegations. And for Brittany to be so vehement, I understand this is going to happen, but he must not be involved is very concerning and alarming to me. And then listening to her actually for 20 minutes or so in her own voice describe things that were deeply troubling, I have to say. I I did hear trauma from the way that she talked and the way she described things. But perhaps let's talk about some of the behaviours that she described. Because to me, I heard high levels of coercive control, i.e., her not having control over her reproductive rights, her own body of decisions that all women should be able to take about their reproductive and their health care. That was very alarming to hear that they have taken decisions and men making decisions on her behalf that she shouldn't get pregnant and that she can't remove the IUD. Firstly, I feel that that's none of my business or anybody else's business anyway. We shouldn't even be hearing that. 
So that tells me that it's got to such a dire situation that she feels she has to put that on the table to the judge so the judge understands really what's going on. But to take her autonomy and to reproductively, I mean, we do call it coercive control around her reproductive rights. Before we even get to finance, I'm worried about, you know, the woman's, her choice, her right as a woman to as 39-year-old woman whose biological clock, you know, I'm sat here pregnant, I understand the biological clock and everything that happens to women when you hit your 30s and your 40s, that they are making that choice for her as to whether she will ever be a mother again. I can't think that that would ever be right. What are your thoughts on that, Lonnie? You know, there were a lot of things she said. And, and let me just set up the, the situation at the hearing. We're sitting there listening and the judge, you know, welcomes everyone there and has all of the attorneys introduce themselves. There's like over eight attorneys. They're all giving their um, introductions. And remember this, every attorney there is being paid by Britney Spears. All of them, the one that's supposed to be representing her and all of the people that are fighting to keep her in that conservatorship, she has to pay them. Which is insane. It's insane that that can't be in her best interest. That's a conflict, surely. Exactly. In fact, one of the um, bills that was submitted by the conservatorship attorneys for a four month period, the bill was almost $900,000. And part of the work that they were doing was media strategizing to defend why they kept going on in the conservatorship. Obviously something she doesn't want and she's paying that much. Anyways, that's, that's a whole wow. other issue aside, but the hear, hearing starts and they introduce the, introduce the attorneys and then they also have Brittany, you know, say her name. So we heard her name just briefly. And then her attorney says, okay, we're here because Brittany's requested this. And I don't know what she's going to say. She's prepared this all herself. All I ask is that nobody interrupt her while she's giving her statement. Let her finish. And immediately two, one or two of the other attorneys says, well, look, if she's going to start talking about her mental health, we need to close this down from the public because she needs privacy. And if she's going to talk about her kids, we need to close this down because it's about privacy. And as they're talking, all of a sudden you hear Britney Spears interrupt them, literally interrupt them. And she says, they've done a good job at exploiting my life and the way they've done that my life. So I feel like it should be an open court hearing and they should listen and hear what I have to say. I'm telling you, it was like everybody just like sucked in their breath and outside, everybody started cheering. It was like, no, this is not happening again. I am done with all of you telling me what I can or cannot do. This is my life. This is my health. These are my children and I'm going to put it out there. And when you say how awful it is that she has to be talking about her reproductive system, you know, what, what's going on in her life as far as she wants to have children. She can't because she has an IUD in her body that she has not been allowed to take out. What a horrible invasion of her privacy. And yet she realized, I have to put this out here because no one has listened to me. And let me go back to 2014. We know that in 2014, based on those uh, confidential documents that were just leaked, at that time, according to those uh, transcripts, Mr. Ingham raised what he said were six points Ms. Spears had asked to bring him up, including concerns about her father's drinking, the custody of her children, and terminating the conservatorship of her person altogether. And he said that she had been hostile, aggressive, and extremely threatening towards the conservatorship, um, and that she had been using expletives. 
So she'd been swearing, right? And he said, as an officer of the court, that was very troublesome to me and that he'd informed the lawyers for Mr. Spears, who oversaw the singer's visitations with her two sons, so he can take whatever steps are necessary to protect the children. So here's a court hearing where Brittany's not there. She's asking her attorney to bring up these concerns that she has. And instead, he brings them up, but then he focuses more on the fact that she was swearing and that was upsetting to him. And so he thinks that that should affect the visitation. And then he says, he mentions that Mrs. Sp- Ms. Spears believed the conservatorship preventing prevented her from retiring, getting married, and having children. The judge at the time said, I don't recall we made any orders about the right to marry, but you may not want to tell her that. And he said, somehow that did not come up in the conversation. So even as far back as 2014, she had been saying, I want to get married. I want to have children. I want this to end. And nobody's helping her do that. Nobody, even at the judge at that time. So why does she think she can't do that? Let's look into that. Why shouldn't she be able to? Even as far as back as 2014, the judge wasn't doing anything to help her. The attorney wasn't doing anything to help her. And in her mind, whether it's true or not, the conservatorship has told her she has to stay on this birth control. Talk about an abusive situation for her. And, and looking into the case law, you know, it's, there's not a lot of cases on, on, um, this in conservatorships, but back in 1985, the California Supreme Court looked at a case where the guardian parents of a 29 year old woman with Down syndrome wanted to force her to undergo a tubal ligation. They ended up going to court and the court said, no, you cannot force that on her. She's 29 years old. She has Down syndrome, but you can't make that decision, okay? Britney Spears is a 39-year-old woman, extremely competent, extremely capable. She knows what she wants. She's already a mother. She wants to have another child. She wants to get married. And the current conservatorship in her mind, according to her, is telling her, no, you have to keep this birth control in you. You can't have children. You can't get married. Doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. And it is outrageous because it it doesn't matter what the mental health issue is. Women have a right to be treated with dignity and with respect and to have their rights. It's a basic human right understood. And that's whether they're being managed legally or medically. And so, as you say, she's 39 now. So 13 years on, you know, are they saying that nothing has been effective as to what they're doing? Because that's a question, which means that what they're doing doesn't work and therefore something else should be tried. But it's very clear they've had her working and working hard. And when I've watched her shows in Vegas when she did her first residency and the things she's been doing, the MTV documentary, for example, she was very coherent, competent. Her dancers said so behind the scenes, you know, she made a couple of references to how sad she felt. And yes, when you have no autonomy, when you have no right to choose, of course, that has an impact on your mental health. It, it may well be doing more damage than actually what it's seeking to achieve. And I can understand why the second residency, she walked off, again, controlling the little thing that she can. To me, that's her way of saying, I'm not going to keep doing what you're telling me to do. She's, she finds little ways to do it. And maybe that was a big way of saying, I'm not working anymore until my dad's removed. But she's clearly, they've assessed her as being well enough to work and they're all taking money from her, her, her dad taking 1.5%. And obviously with the Vegas res- residency, that's huge in terms of 
the money that she's bringing in. And I guess, Lonnie, one of the things that really did alarm me was hearing about one of the co-conservators or he's the co-signatory or was on the conservatorship. He had filed a court document requesting more money that he be paid a raise for what he was doing, because according to him, the business model was, he called it a business model, was so successful, he was doing much more. Therefore, he felt he was deserving of more money. That is a huge red flag. A conservatorship, as you've described, it's not for people making money. It's not for a business model. I mean, how can that be right, that he files in 2020 for a raise as if this is a full-time job and he's making all this money from her? Yeah, I think that we can't say for sure, but one of the things that might have sort of uh, stimulated this continuing for 13 years situation, like you said, you would think that at this point, they would be doing something that would be getting her to the point where she could be on her own, right? But apparently no one in the court system has any, that's not even on the horizon until she spoke up last week, is because of the money situation because millions of dollars were coming in. So Jamie, as the conservator, was making $16,000 a month in fees, plus $2,000 a month for office space. Then he went to the court and asked for approval to get a percentage of all the business deals. And he got that. And that's where you get that 1%. He got another you know, percentage amount on another deal that he did. And the co-conservator, along with Jamie, over the financial part of the conservatorship was Andrew Wallet, and he voluntarily resigned. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. It is, like you said, it is becoming a financial slash business for these people rather than a way to facilitate getting Brittany to the point where she can be independent. And I think a lot of them have, have lost sight of that. And that's why it's just sort of 
going along because no one wants to change the situation. No one wants to end the, the gravy train. And that's why I think it was so significant when Brittany said, I'm stopping with that second residency. One, she said she was overworked and, and you know she'd been forced to work up to that point. And she'd also been put on lithium, which had made her, you know, like a zombie and, you know, being given medication that she wasn't happy with. But two, if they keep saying the reason why she needs this conservatorship is because her businesses and her finances are so complex, let me just cut them all out then. Let me just make it really simple. We'll just stop the money coming in. You know, I'll retire and I'll, and I'll quit. But then she was told she believes she can't retire. So she is really in a catch 22. And it was literally like a woman going under saying, this is my last gasp. You know, when she did this hearing and at the very end of the hearing, after she'd gone on for 20 minutes and she was so anxious, she would be talking so fast. The judge kept telling her, you need to slow down for the court reporter. Um, she said at the very end, I deserve to have a life. I've worked my whole life. I deserve to have a two or three year break just so you know, to do what I want to do. But I do feel like there is a crutch here and I feel open and I'm okay to talk to you about it today. But, and here's the really got to my heart here. I wish I could stay with you on the phone forever because when I get off the phone with you, all of a sudden I hear all these no's, no, no, no. And then all of a sudden I get, I feel ganged up on and I feel bullied and I feel left out and alone and I'm tired of feeling alone. I deserve to have the same rights as anybody does by having a child, a family, any of those things and more so. And I just thought, what a desperate cry for help. That's what she's living in. And she'd had this one moment where she felt like she'd escaped because she was able to talk to the judge and people were able to hear her. But she said, I'm afraid I'm going to go back and nothing's going to happen again. I'm just going to be right back in that same situation. I agree. I, I feel it's so heart-wrenching. And even listening to her on those 20 minutes, the fact that she has got an audience with a judge, I can hear the desperation and the sort of the urgency when she's in flow of just trying to get everything out that she's felt or that she's going through because somebody's finally listening. And as she said multiple times, I've tried so many times, but nobody listens. I just get no's. And other people can attest to that as well. They can attest to any time she has done media interviews, she's had handlers she, her world has shrunk and therefore there's been such tight control and management of her. Who else has she got in her corner? It, it just seems to me that when you look back in time from a child star, that she was sexualized very early on and people tried to uh, create this very adult image of her. And now she's been completely infantilized. Like she's a child, she's a 39-year-old woman. She's a mum. She is a mega star, an icon. And thank goodness for her fans. I have to say, I pay tribute to them because they have been noisy about this. And the Hulu documentary, the New York Times documentary that you referenced, Framing Britney Spears, I highly recommend people watch it. A different narrative is put out and it's interesting women speaking out because so often, and certainly with Britney's story, it's been men controlling the narrative and I feel very aggrieved about that, actually, that even with Justin Timberlake, when they split up, he controlled the narrative. And you can start to see this downward spiral, actually, this turn of this beautiful young girl who had everything ahead of her. And suddenly she gets on the wrong end of things and it starts to go south. 
relatively quickly and then the media reporting unfit mother and pathologizing her very early on because she's not doing what they want her to do. And there have been so many men who have played a role in that. And I think even now with her dad and she's got a female judge and I hope that the right decisions are taken. But it's just such a concerning thing that we are where we are in 2021 and you hear a mother, a woman who's desperate to have her own autonomy in a conservatorship that seemingly she can get out of at any time. And of course, we don't know what's being said behind the scenes. And you've referenced that multiple times. And I think it's very important everyone understands that, that she may well have rules and regulations that she's bound to adhere to with a fear of consequence if she doesn't, because she has no autonomy. She can't decide what she does and when she does it. She can't decide about her body. She has no, even on the most micro details of her life, they're being managed by others who have a vested interest in keeping her managed and controlled because they're all making money. How can that be in her best interest that those lawyers are all taking money, all being paid by her? And I, she made that point, you know, that she's well enough to work. She's doing all of these things, but she's not well enough to decide what colour her cabinets are or to get married. And I think every woman should be very alarmed by this, actually, because it is, for me, an extension of pathologizing women who most likely have been in trauma and need help, who have been misunderstood and have been pathologized and made to look like they're crazy. And everyone loves that crazy woman story. Well, flip the script. Where's the male equivalent? We've seen many male celebs in Meltdown. I've not seen one of them have this conservatorship or controls placed. I mean, have you, Lonnie, you've been in, uh, you know, this space for a while. If we flip the script and look at it in terms of the sex, a female versus male, where is there a like where this has happened before? I don't think there is. First of all, I don't think we can point to another conservatorship like this one. I just don't think there's ever been one of, you know, uh, such a big celebrity who is so successful, who continued to work through the conservatorship the way she has. And yet, on the other hand, like you said, how many male celebrities have we seen act out in a violent way, in a, in a you know, unhinged way, um, in a reckless way? And it just, you know, gets brushed aside. It gets moved aside. No one talks about you know, a conservatorship coming in place, it just gets quote unquote handled, right? It was really, when you look back on it, it was such the perfect storm of so many dangerous factors coming into play. And one of the biggest ones was, was her father getting involved so aggressively, like you said, and having the court deem him to be the one that was the most appropriate to be in control over her finances and her, and her personal life. I mean, how many, let's see, she's 39 now, it's been 13 years. You know, how many 26-year-olds want their dad telling them if they can leave the house or not? I mean, for any reason, no matter what the situation is, it just, it does does not make sense to me at all that they did not put, you know, someone else in, in that place. And that is the first thing she's asking for. She's asking for two things right now. Same thing she's been asking from the very beginning. One, she wants her own attorney that she picked. And two, she doesn't want her father involved. I mean, does it take 13 years for them to finally listen to her on those two things? And then three, she wants to be able to end this 
conservatorship. And she said, I'm sorry, judge. I didn't realize that I could file a petition to end it. If she didn't know that, what's her attorney been doing for the last 13 years? I mean, that's what he sh- he's there for. How do I end this? Well, let me tell you as your lawyer, since this is what I'm being paid to do is to help you do this, I'll file a petition for you. And it may, she th- thinks she has to do it. I, I didn't know I could file a petition. No, Brittany, you don't have to be the one to do it. That's what your attorney's there to do. That's what his job is for. At the very least, he can tell you that that's what you do, but then he actually needs to do the work. So hopefully, you know, at this point, those things will be done. But, you know, she's been saying the same thing for years. And finally, um, people heard, you know. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point because all these lawyers are being paid. They're all receiving a paycheck. So where's their incentive to do what's right for her? I mean, even with her own lawyer, it's right. it's very exploitative, isn't it? In In every way that I just feel that having watched the documentary, you hear from her chaperone. Uh, Felicia, and who's known her since she was 15, 16, maybe even before that, actually. And she talks very authentically about Britney as a person and wanting the best for her. There's very few people who you hear who actually have got her back, who want the best for her, who are not trying to exploit her in any way at all. And I think it was her mother, Lynn, who talked about postpartum depression. And, you know, those voices we should be hearing more of and her getting the right advice, an independent voice, an advocate who really can advocate for her and give her the right information and make the right representation. Because I just feel this whole circus, you've just got too many people with vested interests in keeping her controlled and micromanaged. And from what she was saying as well, I mean, it's really alarming. She was saying she was made to see a therapist twice a week and a psychiatrist. You know, if you genuinely do need to see someone for talk therapy once is really enough a week, even that a week is a lot because you've got to do the work and it's exhausting. And she talks about that. But three times and then her not being allowed to see someone at her own home address she has to go out and therefore media will follow her. Even that, it might not seem a lot to other people, but actually that's a huge red flag. Why would someone put that condition? It it does talk to me that she's being set up to look like that she is crazy, unhinged, crying in public when we don't know the context of what's going on. If what she says is true, and I have no reason to doubt what she's saying, But the excessive therapy is counterproductive, in my opinion. So who really has got her best interest at heart? Maybe her new partner? Maybe if she does get an independent lawyer? Yeah, I agree with you. It's like she's being set up to fail over and over again. And either that is done out of uh, ignorance and they just don't care, or it is being done intentionally, you know, just to keep the cycle going. And you hope that somebody once will stand down. Now, there are reports now that Lynn, her mother, is stepping up and wants to get more involved. I don't know if she's going to be a strong enough voice. I, I'm hoping that the judge, who is the one that is in charge of this, they're the, the final say in this, that this judge will look at this and say she is capable of picking her own attorney. That's the first step someone that she feels has her best interest at heart and will give her the information she needs. And then secondly, 
will recognize that having her father is not a good situation. I mean, the fact that it, just over a year ago, you know, he's the one who determines if she can see her kids or not. He got into an altercation with one of her sons to the point where Kevin Federline, the father, got a restraining order to keep Jamie away from the kids. And yet he's still supposedly capable of determining if she could see her own children or not. I mean, there's so many things that have been adding up and it's just like, they just keep it in place. They just keep it in place. And it's time for them to step back and take an accounting of everything they've done and put it right for her, you know, start putting her on the path of, of having that independence. Absolutely. It, it sounds positively draconian to me, I have to say. It, it's like we've gone back in time. I can't believe that we're hearing this of, of Brittany and what's happened to her, the micro-regulation for 13 years, which is enough to exacerbate any mental health issue. The, the purpose part is the corner of mental health or having some kind of purpose and feeling like you have choice and your autonomy. And particularly for someone who was just so in control of her own destiny, you know, and I'd invite people to look at her interviews from when she was younger and listen to what her dancers would say about her in terms of her controlling the choreography. And even doing the Vegas residency, she had to be compass mentis to deliver over and over again at such a high level. And that sadness and that desperation, I, I feel that she's like a woman drowning and we're now all spectators watching her as she's taking her last gasps. And, you know, even with IG, yes, lots of people are speculating on what certain images mean and is she trying to communicate with people and of course, she's trying to say things. I mean, when you are coercively controlled and it's like coming out of a, a fog or a haze, once you realise that you've been gaslit and once you realise that actually, and I, I believe that seeing her fans and everybody rise up and reinforce that actually it's not right has empowered her to find her voice. But there's still a big fear of consequence for her. There's still, if she breaks those rules... She had desperation to see her children, to be with her partner, to do the things that every normal 39-year-old would want. She has taken some risks with not taking the Vegas residency, but there are other things that I believe that they've still got this control over her. And we don't know everything, what's going on and what's being said behind the scenes. But that fear is very omnipresent. So when you read out her quote of last part of her testimony for the first time she's talking to a judge somebody else is hearing things that she's got some autonomy in what she's saying but there's real desperation to it you know like it's the last chance saloon this is the only time because yes she made I guess there was a, a win in a sense at the last hearing but getting someone from the bank involved in the conservatorship it's still that the conservative ship exists and it's still her father being involved. So she still doesn't feel that ultimately she's got any autonomy. And this feels to me like she thinks it's her last chance to be heard properly and for this to end. And it, it felt very authentic to me. Yeah. And, and as you were talking, Laura, I just had that glimpse of just think, you know, we're looking at it now because now we've heard from her and we know incidents of what she says was really going on if she had not spoken out now how much longer would this go on nothing would change nothing would change the only hope that she has of something changing is now that she's spoken up 
in a public way. She's broken the secrecy. She's broken that seal that she has been keeping her, you know, everything quiet in, in court. And then all of these these, you know, she says that threats that are being made to her, you know, well, if you do this, then you're going to lose this. Well, if, oh, she speaks up about, you know, something in the choreography and all of a sudden her therapist puts on a totally different kind of medication that, that, you know, is devastating to her. So there are huge consequences for her if she doesn't toe the line on everything that they tell her she has to do. So she did, she took a huge risk speaking out. And it was also interesting in part of her statement, she was going to ask that she'd be able to make a public statement. And then she kind of pulled back. She goes, oh, actually, we're doing that today. She didn't realize it was going to be broadcast as publicly as it was. She thought she was just speaking to the judge. So that was a huge opportunity for her to be able to speak publicly. And I think that that's what it took. If she had just spoken to the judge, well, she spoke to the judge like that back in 2019 and none of us ever heard about it. None of us ever knew that all of these things, she said, look, judge, I asked you, these things back in 2019 and nothing was done. So I'm going to ask you again. I'm going to tell you again what I said, hoping that this time you will listen to me. So I think she was feeling some support and confidence from the fans and the people that, you know, out in public who've said that they're, you know, backing her. But like you said, she also doesn't know if that's going to be it. She's just going to be squeezed back in to that very controlled situation that she's been forced into. And possibly punished even more, you know, and I think that punishment theme has come out numerous times. I mean, she actually said that her dad and others should be in jail for what they've done to her and that she feels it's like a punishment. Um, and I, I think it's interesting what you said. She didn't know it was going to be made public because it makes sense now for why she was slightly wrong footed, but also posted the next day to say, I've never talked about the embarrassment of what's been going on in my life, the shame and embarrassment that keeps somebody quiet. You know, if you genuinely have a very small echo chamber and all those people are saying, you're crazy, you had this meltdown, everyone saw you, you know, people know that you're unwell, then you can be stuck in that shame and embarrassment and humiliation, which can keep you controlled and keep you silenced. And it's just such an irony, isn't it? She uses her voice to entertain us all and has done since she was a child. And it's her voice that's been totally taken away. And then that desperation of hearing her in flow, at times garrulous, 10 words, you know, to, to the second, just trying to get it all out. If I wasn't hearing that, I would think that maybe it wasn't as authentic and sincere, but everything just sounded so raw and from the heart of being silenced for so long. And I mean, her voice is her greatest gift. And yet she's been shut down by so many across so many years. And I do think men have played a very key role. And I think Justin Timberlake apologising, well, that's great. I think he's realised, but just that dominant male narrative that we always hear, they split up, he takes the microphone, he says all these things about her to make her look as if, you know, she was cheating and everyone buys into that narrative. And that's when her image and everything started to come under attack. And I think those men who have been responsible for the pressure, the the challenges that she has faced, and there are many of them, including the media, should accept responsibility here and should become part of the solution 
to create change for her. And I'm pleased that so many celebrities are speaking out and as well as her fans. And I hope the momentum continues. And, you know, in your legal view, what do you think will happen next? What do you think the next steps are? Well, I think the judge at the end said, you know, we need to set some hearing dates. So um, to get a new attorney, she needs to ask for a hearing on that and to uh, get the process for the conservatorship to be terminated, there also needs to be a petition filed. So it's a matter of getting this paperwork done and then hearings be done. I personally think that she should get her own attorney because that way everything will, I think, move more quickly forward. I think they need to take Jamie off the conservatorship right away. They already have the other, the trust firm in place. They can just let it stay there. And then they need to start doing the evaluations to terminate the conservatorship. Now to do that, the person who the conservatorship is on, it's the burden on them to prove to the court that they're capable of taking care of themselves. She did ask in her statement that this just be terminated without any evaluations done of her because you can tell she has, from what she said, she sounds like she's been very traumatized by the therapy, by the doctors, by the medication that she's been forced to take. And it was almost like it was too much for her to even consider being evaluated again. Unfortunately, for them to be able to terminate this conservatorship, there will be evaluations done because the whole thing is whether she's, you know, capable um, mentally, physically to, to be on her, you know, have that independence. So there will, but, but that plan needs to be put in place. They need to work with the, you know, the experts and the judge and her attorney to say, okay, what are the steps to get her to where she wants to be, which is out of the conservatorship? What tests do we need to do? What evaluations do we need to do? And then, you know, how can we set this up to move her on that path as quickly as possible? And I wonder if she saw some transparency and she felt there was some independence and that there there were people who were on her side, whether she would sign up to another evaluation, because that was the thing that she was very clear about, wasn't it? That she didn't want another evaluation. And when you understand she's been forced to be evaluated so many times at her father's behest. And we don't know who he's using. And of course, you don't know whether psychiatrists, psychologists are trauma-informed. And as I've worked on many cases, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists can be led. And that is very concerning. So I could imagine that she would just be worried that they would just write more of the same that is in favour of her father's point of view, if he's the one that's instructing them. If that's why I think it's so important that she have her own attorney, because then she'll have some trust there that Jamie not be involved in this at all anymore. So she'll feel uh, a, a sense of safety there. And, you know, whenever you have a therapist, one of the most important things is that the person getting the therapy have some trust with that yeah. person. So when you, you, when you assign her a therapist that she doesn't trust, nothing is going to be done. You cannot make any progress in that situation. So they need to, um, you know, have the people doing the evaluations by people that she trusts, that she will be open to and be honest with, and who will see her openly and honestly as well. That's such an important point. Trauma-informed care. And I talk about it oftentimes on Real Crime Profile and also my professional day-to-day, that the key principles of it are safety, choice, that there's a collaboration, that there's empowerment, and there's trustworthiness. 13 years have gone by and each of those principles seem to be lacking. 
So we can understand in her shoes why she feels so mistrustful of everything going on around her. That would make anybody paranoid and sound, you know, to some like they're being irrational. But when we sit in and stand in her shoes and we see her POV and we heard some of it for 20 minutes, but that can't characterise 13 years of almost being kept in captivity. I mean, she equated herself to, uh, you know, being trafficked or being a slave of some description, which is why coercive control seems to really fit here, that she has been, her, her autonomy has been undermined, her her rights, her freedoms, her agency, and her self-esteem. Everything's been slowly eroded, actually, and continued to be eroded for 13 years by a father and a conservatorship, a legal process and system that sits around her that has eroded her voice and her ability to make even the the smallest of decisions. So she's been utterly dominated in every way. And I think we need to understand that. In England and Wales, if this were happening, I mean, there are high levels of coercive control here when we understand her father's background and just the genesis of this, when we put it back in context. And it could well be a crime of what he's done. And therefore, when Brittany says he should be in jail along with the others, is there anything equivalent here, Lonnie, in in California that, you know, we know about elder abuse, for example, is there anything equivalent, like an abuse of power that could possibly be looked at in terms of a a criminal offence? You know, that's a a really interesting question because um, the conservatorship gives so much power to the person in that position that there's a lot of leeway for those decisions that were being made. Um, I, I think the evaluation could be made. I don't, I, I think it would be very difficult to actually be able to bring charges. But it's interesting. She was very clear in the people that she named. There was no one that she felt was standing by her. She named her father specifically over and over again. And then she said, everyone here should be made to pay for what they did, what they've been doing. And she did say specifically that, you know, they should be going to jail. Her father, her management, even her own family, she said she wanted to sue them uh, because she didn't like, you know, that they'd been speaking out of turn about her, you know, giving these interviews and talking about her. And yet she can't say anything in her behalf. The only person that she seemed, you know, that she wanted to have any time with is her, her boyfriend. But when you realize that she had so many people that she didn't feel like she could rely on, And she felt so alone. It is amazing that after 13 years of being worn down, like you said, over and over again, that at this point, she still had the strength to make that statement that she made. I mean, talk about the strength that it would take to make that statement when you have no self-esteem anymore, when you have no trust in your own abilities to make a decision, when you've been told over and over again that you can't take care of yourself, that you aren't able to do this, that you're not capable, um, that you can't spend your own money, that you can't go out and drive, that you can't leave the house, that you can't, you know, pick the clothes you're going to wear, that you can't pick the doctor you want, you can't pick your own attorney. For her to be able to make that statement uh, is almost miraculous, really, after 13 years of, of going through all of that. It is. And I'm glad that you pointed that out because the erosion of self, when you doubt yourself, you doubt everything. It's not just the little voice in your head. You've got everyone around you reinforcing that. That cannot and should not be underestimated. And I say that because on Twitter, people were tweeting, oh, well, she hasn't really helped herself by speaking out. 
I mean, if I didn't hear signs of any form of trauma, I would have been much more concerned about what was really going on. Everything I heard was authentic and in keeping with an experience of someone who for 13 years has had no autonomy, who went from, you know, such a high level of choices, making money, deciding every aspect of her life to a spiral. And we saw some of it, but I don't believe it was quite as bad. And I don't know everything that was in the reports, for example. So I've never assessed her as all I know is that there was a context, a mum who was desperate to see her children, who lost a very vicious custody battle, who lashed out at a reporter. And as you say, we've seen that a million times of men lashing out at reporters or behaving far worse, actually, and there were other behaviours that, yes, were concerning. And there could have been a reason for getting her assessed and uh, the psychological evaluation and for her then to come under a conservatorship. But for 13 years and there's no improvement and they're saying that we still have to keep this, there's serious questions to be asked. But very brave, very courageous of her speaking out. And, yes, she's got a lot of support and a lot of backing. And the re-traumatisation is very clear to me actually it's very apparent and there's lots of people who can start to heal her Justin Timberlake I believe is one of them speaking out and all the others that have been engaged in exploiting her or doing wrong by her who should be shamed into an apology and actually trying to make good what they've done because I I do feel she has been victimized and that lack of autonomy for someone who's been so successful for now as a 39 year old woman who is seen to be compass enough to make all this money for them. I mean, it does seem like domestic servitude to me and coercive control. There's just no two ways about it. Just when you listen to the behaviours, if you take everything about the framework away and just listen to what she describes and how she's been treated, it's appalling. So we'll see what happens, I guess, in terms of the coming months. And I hope her testimony is listened to. She's not asking for much, really, is she? No, she's That's the not. thing. So I really appreciate you, Lonnie, talking to me. I think it was so interesting that you were at the courthouse at the time when we heard Brittany's voice for the first time. And it sounds like it really was explosive down there. I mean, all her fans and people, certainly on social media, everyone was talking about Britney Spears and about freeing Britney. And at the very least, it means that we're all aware. At the best, it means that there's some pressure, actually, on people to make the right decisions and for advocates to start advocating on her behalf. So we'll see what happens next. And I suspect we will probably talk again. So I thank you very much for your time, for your thoughts, for your analysis. And uh, I really appreciate it. So thank you, Lonnie. Thanks for having me, Laura. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. 
Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. Credit card bill. 